Amen. Hey, page 39, if you want to join me with the recap, but what we've been doing in our intro to apologetics, apologetics mean apologia from the Greek, which means to apologize for being a Christian. Wrong answer. No, apologia, to give a defense of, as the scripture says, to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. Anybody have any hope? The rest of you will keep praying for you, but I'm glad you're here. Okay, yeah, yeah, hope, the hope of Jesus Christ, okay? But we've been dealing with the apologetic issues, like how do we even know that God exists, okay? And that's what we saw in the chapter one. Everything has a beginning, which we know even the universe has a beginning. You and I had a beginning. How many guys can verify that without any help? Praise God. Okay, you had a beginning. Okay, give it up for moms and dads. Uh, and that proves that there was a beginner, i.e. God. Then we said everything has design. Design is something like a watch implies a designer didn't have much chance, i.e. God. Then we talked about what about evolution or evolution, however you want to call it. And uh, we dealt with that, that lie. Then we took a 42-week little detour and really went down deep on that. And then we dealt with another argument for the existence of God, the arguments of morals. Where did this universal moral law come from? Uh, Especially if evolution was supposed to be true, uh, why do people inherently know right from wrong on certain issues? Where did that come from? Well, we're created in the image of God, spiritually and morally, another argument for his existence. Last couple of weeks, we talked about, because it ultimately uh, runs down to this, well, yeah, well, what about the Bible? Because we quote the Bible, we say, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, and eventually the non-Christian will come back and say, well, how do you know the Bible came from God, right? And so that's what we're going to continue on. On page uh, 39, where we started that, we saw, well, okay, let's put this to the test, right? Uh, God doesn't say when you become a Christian, check your brain in at the door. Uh, please come, let us reason together, the scripture says. So let's, let's take a look at this premise that this book came from God. If it came from God, it needs to logically pass through some uh, tests, if you will. And that's what we've been looking at. If this book came from God, we saw there on page 39, then we would think that God wrote it and he would say that he wrote it. Well, he did over 3,800 times, uh, uh, 3,800 times just in the Old Testament. Okay. We think that'd be a very popular book. It is the most popular book on the planet in the history of mankind. Uh, It would be timeless and understood by everyone, meaning that if God wrote this, he would want people to understand it. So therefore, whether it's a young child or an adult, people can understand the gospel and respond. Well, gee, that's true too. We saw that if it really did come from God, this book must be unified and harmonious. In other words, it doesn't contradict itself. Why is that important? Because God doesn't lie. Okay, and that's what we see in the scripture. It doesn't uh, contradict itself. Then we saw on page 43, if God wrote a book, we'd expect it to be powerful. And how many times have people over the years tried to destroy this book and it doesn't work? They try to ban the Bible. They try to burn the Bible, try to get rid of every copy of the Bible, but it keeps coming to the top. Why? Because this book came from God. You're not going to destroy it. He is the one who's all powerful. Then we saw, well, if the Bible really is from God, then it has to be true and not just true in spiritual issues, but true in all things, including history. And we saw that evidence. It's historically accurate. All the evidence of archaeology, not one archaeological find ever, period, once, has ever contradicted the biblical account. And what we saw is the Bible is so accurate, obviously it came from God, God doesn't lie, that archaeologists today, if they want to go find something, they go to the Bible and see where it was. And guess what? It's there every time. Okay, then we saw, well, it's also got to be not only historically accurate, it's also got to be scientifically accurate. And that's what we saw last time uh, with that, you know, people say, well, the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. No, it doesn't. What Bible are you reading? Isaiah says the circle of the earth. The Bible's been saying all along that the earth is round. Maybe the Catholic Church, we saw other cultures like the Egyptians would say that the uh, uh, Bible's, uh, or the earth is flat, but not the Bible. Okay. In fact, what we saw is the Bible not only does not contradict known true science, Okay, but the Bible contains much science that we are just now rediscovering or have just learned about. Okay, and then we finally finished up. Well, the Bible also then needs to have supernatural power. If this book really did come from God and God is above and beyond all of time and creation, 
okay, and he knows the, and can see the beginning from the end, the alpha from the omega, then therefore the ultimate stamp of proof is then he, the Bible should contain things that only God can know, meaning like the future. Well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies dealing with the first uh, coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the overthrow of nations, and, and minute detail, by the way. Okay, it wasn't like, hey, I see that somebody here has a backache. You know, no, the Bible is very specific, okay? And we saw that the Bible contains that and gets how many wrong? None, because God doesn't lie, okay? And that's another proof. Now we're going to take a look at some more proof uh, tonight in the new chapter. That's right, new chapter. Turn to somebody and say, hey, we made it, new chapter. It's exciting stuff. Page 51, man, we're cooking now. 51, more reasons why we can trust the Bible. As if that wasn't enough, uh, we're going to take a look at more reasons why uh, we can trust the Bible. Number one, here's the reason why. We have great quantity of highly reliable copies of the books of the New Testament. That's the New Testament. Hey, uh, Michael, give it for Michael. Michael's a servant of God here tonight. Michael, uh, ladies, you need a couple of workbooks back there? Sure, Pastor, really? Sure, uh, uh, thank you. Mike, if you could take two back there to those uh, uh, young ladies back. Give it up for Mike. He's what a guy. Big debuts on the video. What a guy, I tell you what. But uh, that's right. And uh, page 51 there, if you want to turn there, we have great quantity of highly reliable, is your first blank there, great quantity of reliable copies of books of the New Testament. Now, he says this, there are over more than 5,600, 5,660 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament from close to the time when the originals were written. Furthermore, these copies from many different geographical areas. In addition to the Greek manuscripts, we also have translations of the gospel in other languages at a relatively early time. For example, there are more than 8,000 ancient Latin copies of the New Testament, right? Now, as we're going to see, the more copies you have of, uh, even though you, you may not have the original, but the more copies you have of the original, uh, it helps you to get completely accurate to what the originals were, okay, with, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and we're going to deal with that in great detail tonight. But there's also an interesting thing that takes place. The more you have, the more it gets uh, secured, okay? <clears throat> Even if we had no Greek manuscripts today, by piecing together the information from these translations, we could actually reproduce the contents of the New Testament, okay? So even if we lost all the Greek, right? Because the Bible went from Koine Greek, New Testament, right? Went into Latin, because it came the common uh, language of the day, military language from the Greeks, or from the Romans, okay? And that's where we had the Jerome uh, Vulgate, or Latin, vulgar, meaning from, you know, common, the common language of the day. Then it switched to English, which is what we have today, okay? But if, so the original was in Greek. But even if we lost all the Greek, we got so many copies of the Latin, we could still reconstruct it. But it goes even more than that. He says, in addition to that, even if we lost all the Greek manuscripts and the early translations, we could still reproduce the contents of the New Testament from the multiplicity of quotations, commentary, sermons, letters, and so forth of the early church fathers. So even if we lost all the copies, Greek, Latin, the whole nine yards, it was quoted, the scripture, so much in early church history. And why would they quote it so much if they thought this was not or a book whooped by man? Why would they create it with such authority, right? Right. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. And I, I'm, you know, commentators have made the, you know, the statement that, uh, you know, it's part of they believe, and I agree, part of God's way of pre preserving the word. Because early on in the church history, not only was we the church persecuted and literally hunted down and killed and burned to the stake, uh, as we know, uh, the testimonies uh, back in the day of Nero would not just crucify Christians, uh, and uh, but he would uh, cover them with tar. 
and, uh, and light them on fire to, and line the, the garden way so they would light them up at night. I mean, so, it's hor- so, so they tried to eradicate Christianity multiple times, tried to eradicate, as we saw before in a previous study, how they tried to even get rid of the Bible. But the interesting thing that God did, he preserved it. There, even if you got rid of all the originals, even if you got rid of all the Greek co- manuscripts, even if you got rid of all the Latin copies, we could still recreate it. And I see that as God's hands protecting his word. You're not going to get rid of this, Okay. Uh, let's continue on. The oldest portion of the New Testament we have today is from the Gospel of John. Actually, I got some uh, more current information. It's a lot uh, more current than that. But anyway, let's continue on. Uh, it's called the John Ryland's Fragment. You can see a picture down there. Uh, scholars have dated this portion of John's Gospel to about 125 A.D. The interesting thing about this scrap is that it was found in a community along the Nile River in Egypt, far from Ephesus, where the Gospel of John uh, was written. Okay, so again, the, the importance of that is you have a document uh, that was in was just in years of the original writing. Okay, and we'll get to that in a second, why that's important. But I want to back up a little bit and uh, uh, update this a little bit. Uh, we've actually found uh, a near in the same area where the Qumran caves where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, they found some Greek manuscripts in there. Uh, and they found some Greek manuscripts in there, and they've been sitting on a shelf for many years because they couldn't figure out where this was coming from in the Old Testament. Dead Sea Scrolls, Old Testament, okay? Remember that? Well, this was Greek, Greek uh, manuscripts, uh, portions of it, uh, of the New Testament, but they didn't put two and two together because they couldn't figure it out, so it's been sitting on a shelf. Well, they finally looked at it again. They realized, wait a second, uh, this is not from the Old Testament. It's from the New Testament. Now, here's what they discovered. One of the most exciting finds involves cave number seven. In cave seven, we have different types of manuscripts. They're written on papyrus rather than parchment uh, or sheepskin, and it's written in Greek, not Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew. 19 small fragments of papyrus were found. 17 of the 19 fragments were unread, and the reason why is because they assumed they were in the Old Testament. They weren't. They were New Testament fragments. One of the most obvious ones, though, of the fragments is from the book of Mark, okay, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, it even contains uh, particular words that are pe- uh, peculiar only to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gennesaret was one of them, the area of the Sea of Galilee, okay, and used only in the first century, so it helps to date the letters uh, accurate, okay? Uh, but also, they continued to analyze it, and they not only found with these fragments several other passages from Mark, but from the book of Acts, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, and James. And the significance is that this was, they have verified that these were done before 68 AD, okay? Uh, before the Romans came in and destroyed uh, that area and Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So they can accurately figure out that these were written around that time frame, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. Okay, you put all this together, and if you take the 68 AD date that they're estimating for these New Testament fragments, remember the John Rylands was 125, okay? And so you got about 30 years difference, okay, from when John wrote the, uh, uh, you know, like uh, Revelation 95, 96 AD. Listen to this. If you take the 68 date there for these New Testament manuscripts, this means we now have portions of the Gospel of Mark within 13 years when it was actually written. 13 years, it gets better than that. It means we have portions of the book of Romans within 11 years. Portions of the book of James within 8 years. Acts within 5 years. 1 Timothy within 5 years. And portions of 2 Peter the exact same year it was estimated to be written. Now, as we're going to see on the next page with the manuscripts, but I'll just give you one real quick. Nobody questions the authenticity of the writings of Plato. As you're going to see on the next page, uh, we only have seven copies of the writings of Plato, and they are 1,300 years removed from the original. And then you're going to scoff at the authenticity of the New Testament, 
Okay, when we have portions of the New Testament now, it's not the John Ryland, it's way better than that now because of what they've recently discovered. We have portions of the New Testament that a copy written the exact same year the original was made. Right? And, and, uh, and all the other ones, okay? And again, by the way, um, uh, what is the attitude towards the other ones? Nobody ever questions. And we talked about this before. I took a, a secular philosophy in secular college uh, two different semesters. I never once had one student challenge the uh, professor there in philosophy. Hey, how do you know that this writing from Aristotle is true? How do you know that this is Plato? We can't trust it. Okay? Nobody ever said that. Everybody assumed that, oh, okay, you know what we got. But we only have seven copies on the planet, and they're 1,300 years removed from the original. It's ridiculous. And you question the Bible. It's crazy, okay? But let's take a look at the next one. There is a small time gap. This is your second point between the original New Testament writings and the oldest existing manuscript copies, okay? For instance, at the top here, uh, there's eight, we have eight copies of the history of Herodotus, okay? And this is literally, he's considered, quote, the father of history, of modern history, okay? You get books about it, I got his book in my office and stuff. Nobody questions that, but it's 1,350 years removed from the original. We only have eight copies on the planet. And people produce books and nobody sneezes at it. Nobody questions it, right? Uh, another history book, we have eight copies, Theocities, uh, 1,300 years. Again, Plato is, is demonstrated there. Demosthenes, the Gallic War, Caesar, right? What's going on with the Romans? We got 10 copies of that on the planet, and it's 1,000 years removed from the original. 1,000 years removed. How much could happen in 1,000 years? Yeah, but nobody questions that. Yep, that's apparently what happened with all those wars. They teach classes on make movies about it. It's got to be true. But then you question and scoff at the scripture, and we got portions the exact same year. Okay, it's a little hypocritical. Uh, Tacitus, you see there, uh, the history of Rome uh, and things of that nature. Uh, but again, you combine what we have with the New Testament. It's crazy. And that's why this guy says this. Even if someone deliberately or by accident amended or corrupted a manuscript, it would be corrected by the many other manuscripts available. To sum it up, unless we want to throw a blanket, listen to this point. All right? Unless we want to throw a blanket over all of history and say that there is nothing knowable about the past, no history can be trusted, no Grecian, no Roman history, no Aristotle, no Plato, no Socrates, you, we had better not make any claims against the historicity and accuracy of the New Testament. Right? Think about that. Because what do people say? Oh, you can't trust the New Testament. Yet, really what's going on here is these people who are typically making, and I used to be one of them, so I understand, people who are making claims about the Scripture, you cannot trust the Bible. It's a book whooped up by man. It's full of contradictions and error. You can't trust it. It's not reliable. You mean to tell me that it's accurately copied over all these years? Nobody can even get a story straight between 15 people when you go around there, blah, blah, blah. What they're doing is they're re uh, 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 declaring, frankly, and I don't mean this in a derogatory term, uh, they're de declaring their ignorance in how this book came about. Out. they're not doing the the evidence and this is his point excuse me if you're an uh, being honest intellectually and you want to discover the truth about a document whether it's the bible or any other document you have to deal with these facts right and if you're going to sit here and say that there's no way we can trust this book when we have portions of it from within the exact same year then you can't trust anything in all of human history none of it you can't trust any of these writings that we none of it. You can't trust anything, is what he's saying. So unless you're going to say we can't trust any ancient document, then you're being a hypocrite if you say, oh, no. Yeah, I'll, I'll trust, you know, Herodotus and the, the history of humanity, okay? I'll trust all the things that they say about the history of Rome and the wars, but I'll scoff at that. No, you're being a hypocrite, okay? You're showing that you haven't done your homework, okay? Or you don't want to believe. 
Okay? And typically, I don't know if you've run into people like this. Again, I used to be one. Okay? People would make these bold statements about the Scripture. Oh, the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. And I never once as a non-Christian had somebody ask the question that should have been asked, and that's this. Have you ever read the Bible? Right? Most people haven't. So, I mean, that's being intellectually dishonest. How can you sit there and make a bold, authoritative statement on the Bible that can't be trusted, and you've never even read it? And even if you did read it once, does that make you an expert on it? How many guys just, this was awesome, you know, you skipped going to college. All you did was read a geometry, you found it in a library. You read a geometry book one time. You was able to make it through. It took a little while, you had to drink a lot of coffee. But you made it through that geometry book, and you went out and got a job teaching geometry at the university. Because you're an expert, because you read it one time. And this is what people do. This, what? Okay, you're being dishonest. And that's what he's saying. Unless you're prepared to say you can't trust anything, you can't make that statement that you can't trust the Bible. Because the Bible is the most authoritative, uh, authenticated writing on the planet in the history of mankind, especially with all the skeptical attacks. But then they, uh, he goes on this. The New Testament, that's your blank there, the New Testament documents are far more numerous, older, demonstrably more accurate historically, and have been examined by far greater uh, uh, battery of scholars, both friend and foe, than all other ancient manuscripts put together, but they have met the test impeccably. They have met the test impeccably. For those of you hooked on correct spelling, that would be I-M-P-E-C-C-A-B-L-Y. You'd like to spell that backward? No. Uh, impeccably, I-M-P-E-C-C-A-B-L-Y. Okay, but you can hear the skeptic say this, as the cartoon character is saying, I'm disturbed by the fact that we don't have the originals and the copies are known to have mistakes in them. How many guys heard that? Right, we don't have the original. Okay, so you got the copies. Yeah, okay, blah, blah, blah. Well, the, again, the more copies you have, the better, right? We have put them all together with all the manuscripts. As you know, we're going to see, okay, there's about almost 25,000, 25,000 altogether uh, of the New Testament, okay? Again, how many do we have Plato? Which, again, is my, was my son's favorite philosopher growing up. Plato. I got to say it every time, man. Praise God, I actually got a hand clap on that this time, man. You take 15 times, you get it right. All right, but anyway, so but we got seven, right? We have about 25,000 New Testament. Well, there's an interesting thing that happens. Even if there's some minor variances, because you have so many copies, it helps you to get absolutely accurate, right? So even if you don't have the originals, that doesn't mean you can't know what the originals accurately 100% said. And this is what we're going to see here. There are some minor variants, that's your blank there, there are some minor variants in the biblical manuscripts. However, okay, let's take a look at that, okay? Such variants are relatively rare in the copied manuscripts, number one, so it's, not the, it's the rarity, not the norm, right? Once in a blue moon, in other words. In most cases, number two, we know which variant is wrong from the context of parallel passages, right? The Bible oftentimes, how many guys ever read through the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many guys, when you're reading through them, you go, hey, I'm having veja du. I've read that before. Wasn't that right? Well, it's because you got four witnesses, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just like if you were at a car accident today, right? You have four different people. Doesn't mean that, you know, some of them have got some secret conspiracy going on. How come this guy didn't do it? Maybe it's not true in the other ones. And this the history channel would always accuse. No, it's common sense, right? You have an accident. You got four different people. And so you're going to get in some of them the same thing. There were two cars. Every single of those four people said there was two cars. However, some add details that the other ones didn't do. Nobody's lying. It's just people pick up on different things, right? Uh, there was two cars. One guy said there was uh, two cars. Uh, one was red. One was uh, blue. 
Well, one guy just said two cars. Three out of the four said red and blue. Is there a conspiracy with the other guy? Maybe it wasn't red and blue. Maybe these guys were lying. Maybe they were just... No, it's the same thing. And one person might even have, maybe two of them, only two of them reported, and a lady got out of the red car. But the other ones didn't even talk about a lady. Maybe there wasn't really a lady. Maybe it was a conspiracy. Maybe these other... No, it's just normal when you get, right? It just happens. And that's what they're doing. There are four eyewitnesses reporting. So you see crossover events, and, and that's what we see. But what he's saying here is even if with the minor variance, and by the way, the minor variance, as we're going to see, it's just truly that word minor, punctuation, right? Uh, 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 maybe a misspelling that affects nothing, right? Okay, we're not talking major, like whole giant sections disappearing. Okay, just it's truly minor. But we know what it is because other uh, portions in the scripture tell us what it was. So, now, number three, in no case do the variants affect any doctrine of Scripture, right? So it doesn't change anything, okay? The variants actually vouch for the accuracy of the copying process since the scribes who copied them knew that mistakes existed in the manuscripts, still they were duty-bound to copy what the text said. Then, so that tells you these guys were deadly serious. There was no, they didn't take it upon themselves to, you know, even though it's very tempting for your school teacher, and you see that sentence, and they forgot to put the period. I can't do it. And that's what these guys are saying. Okay, we, I, I know a period is supposed to go there, but that's not my job. My job is to copy this accurately. And that's what we're saying. That's how serious these guys took it. Okay, the variants don't affect, is your next blank, next blank there, the variants don't affect the message of the Bible. Okay, for example, one manuscript reads, holy, holy is our God. Okay, when most other texts read, holy, holy, holy is our God. <laughs> I can't trust the Bible, it's over. It just totally radically changed everything. No, it didn't change anything. It's God is still God and God is holy. And it's even emphasized more than once. One twice, one thrice. So what? What does that change? Okay, let's continue on. Dr. Norman Geisler reminds us that a distinction can be made between the text and its message. For one can receive a text... With mistakes, okay, I love this example, and still receive 100% of the message, okay? He gives the following example. Suppose you receive a message from Western Union, right? For those of you born in 1990 forward, Western Union, let me translate that for you. This was this old mechanical methodology that, yeah. Okay, Western Union, right? And here's what it says you can see there. The phrase is, you have won $7 million. Now, even though that first one has the uh, new number sign there instead of the Y, how many guys could figure out what that says? Common sense. You automatically fill in the blank, right? But he says, no doubt you would be excited about this message, even though uh, there's obviously a mistake. Now, suppose on the same day you receive an email that says you have won $7 million, but this time the Y is there, but the numerical sign uh, is where the O is. Can you still understand what's being said 100% accurate? Perfectly. Okay, and then later you receive a message in the mail that reads, you have one uh, $7 million, but this time you use all there, okay, but the H and have has got the numerical sign there, right? So what you guys are going to do is say, you know what, I just can't trust this. I can't trust this message. I, this is fake. It's full of contradictions and errors. I'm not going to take this serious. <laughs> no, and that's what he says. What would you say? I'm disturbed by these variants and mistakes in these messages. Ha, ha, ha. No, you're going to go down there and pick up your cash, right? And that's why Jim Jubinville tonight is buying his pizza. Jim, where are you at? Oh, you're just standing there still acting like you're not even here. Yeah. But anyway, uh, two things are important about this. All right, let's take a look. Even with one sentence, mistaken all, in all three of those examples, one, two, or three, you can still what? 
100%, not 99. There's no doubt here. You know exactly, without losing any sleep, you know exactly what that message is, right? And that's what we're talking about, the variances, even in the copies here. Okay, two, because in each message, the mistake is in a, listen, different place, we can have confirmation of every other letter in the original intended message. And this is the benefit of why, listen, Plato, you got seven. They're 1,300 years removed. That's it on the whole planet. The New Testament, we've got up to 25,000. And yeah, okay, so in one document, it might have the U gone. Okay, in another document, it might have the Y gone. But you put them all together, and you know exactly. I mean, even in the original document, the single document, you still understand what the message is, but you know exactly without a doubt because of all these copies, and that's what he says there. Like, for instance, go back to that first one. Okay, so the first one, okay, you got all three mess. you got three copies of the same message, right? And the first one here, you already can supplant it. It's a U or a Y, right? But if you weren't even... Didn't want to rely on that. You can look at the second message and see that the Y is contained in number two and three. And then in the second example, okay, uh, you, what, what's this one that's missing? Is it O? But you can see from the first message and third message, there's an O there. And then with the third one, you can see, well, the H has gone from half, but you can see from the first and second one what the third one is, right? And without any doubt. And this is the benefit of having so many copies, Right? It doesn't make it convoluted. It actually is way better to demonstrate 100% accuracy unlike all the other, all the other historical documents that nobody questioned. Okay, that's the importance of it. Number three, the authors, your next blank there, the authors of the New Testament were in a position to report accurate, is your next blank there, accurate historical information. Okay, Matthew, John, and Peter were apostles. Why is that important? Because they walked with Jesus, right there, so eyewitness accounts. Paul and James were later recognized as apostles. Luke was Paul's companion and beloved physician. Mark was Peter's companion. Papias, who wrote about AD 125, I believe uh, early church history records him to be a disciple of the apostle John. Uh, and uh, he wrote in 125 AD, affirmed that Mark had carefully and accurately recorded Peter's eyewitness observations. In fact, Papias and Mark made no mistake and did not include any false statement is what he records for us, okay? Flip the uh, page, page 54. Irenaeus, early church writing, wrote about 180 AD, confirmed. This is now your next generation of church leadership, okay? The traditional authorships of the Gospels. He wrote, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founded the church there. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. Now, why should we listen and give more heed to Irenaeus in 180 A.D.? Okay, what they have to say about the first generation of Christians. Why should we listen to the actual writings of Papias, who was an actual disciple of one of the disciples, John, in 125 AD? Why should we listen to those guys and what they have to say about the authenticity of the writers and the importance of the eyewitness accounts than somebody who scoffs at the Bible today? Go back to the scene of the accident, right? You had a, there's an accident, right? Two cars crashed. Which testimony, naturally, without common sense, you don't have to vote on it, do nothing. Common sense is, uh, holds much more weight. The person who was there when it happened or the person 2,000 years removed from the 
accident. Right? And that's what we have recorded for us. And this is the importance of not only the apostles recording uh, much of the New Testament, okay, and then Paul, who had a direct vision and encounter with Jesus Christ, okay, as well, because these people walked with Jesus Christ. And then even the next generation reports, and who what? They're right next to the parent stock. They're right next to the accident, right? And so they wrote down, and we have their documents, what they said, right? So that holds a whole lot more weight, right? I'm not going to sit here. If I got some guy who recalls an accident from one year ago versus a guy 2,000 years removed, I'm sorry, I'm going to listen to the guy who's a year, right? Right? Why? It's just common sense. And yet people say, oh, you can't trust it. You can't trust it. What are you talking about? And I'm supposed to listen to this guy, 2,000 years removed, who is a natural scoffer. He's never even read the Bible, and he's not even done his homework. He's not even truly examined to, to make up a, an intellectually honest uh, assumption or, or declaration about it. I'm supposed to listen to you? That doesn't make sense. Okay? And yet that's what goes on often, unfortunately, today. Let's continue on. Number four, the New Testament was written during the first century of Christianity again, which was during the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses. The standard scholarly dating, even in very liberal circles, is still within the lifetimes of various eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. Is your blank there. Eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, including hostile witnesses who would have served as a corrective if false teachings about Jesus were around. If the Gospels were not true, and if they contain things that were not true, and again, even historically true of events that they record, like, hey, we went over here, and the Romans did a census here, and then they did this there, you would have people that would say, excuse me, that's not true. I lived in that generation. I'm writing this down. I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm report These guys are liars, because I lived in that generation. Mm -hmm. But what do we find? You know, They would say, hey, wait a minute. I was there. That didn't happen, but that's not what we see. So even the skeptics of Christianity had an opportunity to say, you guys are liars, it didn't happen, it's not true, because we were there, we were alive, or even remove, take another generation. My grandpa was there, he lived in Jerusalem at the time, when you guys are saying all this is going on, uh-uh, it's not, we don't find that. Okay, eyewitness accounts. Number five, the New Testament writers would have wanted to preserve accurate history. The apostles were dying out, so it would have been very important to the New Testament writers to preserve their teachings. These writers had nothing to gain except criticism, prison, beatings, and death. And this is actually a very important point, because back to that, and I've shared this before, back to in secular college when I was taking philosophy, uh, that's what the instructor said. The students baited him into it and said, hey, what, what's your, what do you think about Christianity, Right? And his version of Christianity was uh, Jesus died. He was just a normal guy, probably a good guy, you know, like the world says today, a good teacher guy, right? And, but unfortunately, you know, their leader died. And so they made up this story about the resurrection to keep it going so they can keep their religion going that they were starting. That was his, that was his version, okay? Well, really, so put it all together, would the disciples die like they did if it all was a lie? Right? Yeah, let me read to you how they died according to church history. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Thomas was run through uh, the body with the lance. Simon, brother of Jude, was crucified in Egypt. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Mark was burned and buried alive after being dragged through the streets. Bartholomew was beaten, skinned alive, crucified, then beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed by a spear. Philip was stoned and then crucified. James was thrown off the temple, then clubbed to death because he survived, church history says. 
but so they beat him to death. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Jude was shot to death by arrows. Matthias was first stoned, then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death. And John was put into a cauldron of boiling oil, but survived. And later is the only apostle on record, church history says, died a, quote, natural death. So put this together logically. If this is a bunch of baloney, not only should we see other non-Christian skeptics, critics, of Christianity at that time, say, no, it's not accurate because we were there. It's a bunch of baloney. It's a lie. We don't see that, okay? And saying that they got some event they recorded wrong because they didn't, okay? But number two, excuse me, you would think, and this is just common sense, right? If you're telling a lie, right, and then somebody has a gun to your head or they're getting ready to skin you alive, drag you through the streets, and crucify you, at some point, what are you going to do? What's human nature? Hey, just kidding, just kidding. Somebody sprayed me with chicken juice. I wasn't thinking straight. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't have my little guy here to... So I, I wasn't... And my brain was just off in la-la land. Excuse me, I'm sorry if I offended you. Can I go now? Right? That's common sense. But these guys died horrible, egregious deaths and took it with them to the grave. W- would you do that if it was a lie? Every one of them? Not one of them cracked? What are the odds of that? At least one of them would, right? No. Okay. And so that's another important point. Now, let's continue on. Ancient cultures meticulously cultivated the art of memorization. Is your blank there. Okay. Memorization. Thus, we don't have to worry about the time Jesus actually taught from the time these teachings and the events were written down. Right? Because they're, oh, what do you say, Bob? No, it wasn't it. They memorized. In fact, we saw before, that was, you know, you read in the Gospels, they're, they're always walking, Right? Except for that one time when they all got, uh, they were able to make some good headway, uh, Joey, um, the disciples, they, they had a Honda, and they were able to get, you right? Because the scripture says they were all in one accord. <laughs> Thank you. No, but you always see them, they don't have cars, right? So they're always walking. But what, what's the deal? Jesus is in front, and he's talking, right? He's teaching, Right? Okay, the disciples are following. Well, that's the common practice of a rabbi of the day. And the common practice of a Jewish rabbi of the day is a good disciple is a good cistern that loses not one drop. And so they literally, and it was repetitive over and over again, right? You ever, your parents ever say something over and over again? Yeah, yeah. And then when you get older, you start saying it too. Help me. (laughs) So he's repeating it over and over again. It's quiet because they're memorizing literally his parables, his teachings, word for word. That's the common practice of the day. They didn't have computers. Right? They couldn't write this down. They couldn't store it into some database. They didn't have hard drives. The common practice of the day was memorization. Okay? Books and scrolls were rare, right? Uh, they were ex- uh, expensive in that culture. They didn't have computers, printing presses, TV, videos, recorders. They didn't even have ECT, Ruth. Can you believe that? I mean, that was pretty bad. Uh, in ancient days, school children would memorize Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the whole thing. Rabbis would memorize what? All. How would you like to do that? So it can be done. All the Old Testament. Many Muslims have been known to memorize the entire Quran. Uh, Bandata Vishara recited 16,000 pages of Buddhist canonical text of the Yangon, Myanmar, formerly Rangoon, Burma, for those of you who are wondering, and get on Jeopardy, uh, in May 1974, right? So it wasn't they're going like, oh, what do you say? Huh? It's just, it's memorized. Word for word. That's what a disciple did back in the day. Number seven, differences among the Gospels exactly, is your blank there, exactly fits the pattern of ancient storytelling. Remember, there's no electricity in those days. (laughs) Right? Which means at night, guess what? You didn't sit around and watch the sitcom. You didn't sit around and watch this movie. 
you made your own movie. You sat around and you told stories, right? That's your nightly ritual, right? People on average today, I think the average family today watches almost seven hours of TV, right? That doesn't count computers and tablets and cell phones. That's just TV all combined seven hours a day, right? So can you imagine sitting around every night? This is your, first of all, you're already memorizing, but now you're sitting around and your family keeps telling you the story. I'd say it gets ingrained in your head, right? And that's what we see. It was customary to tell sacred stories with some minor changes. It was entertaining, creative, enjoyable to tell the story a different way. In storytelling, the ancient people didn't feel that it was important, as we do today, to tell the story in strict chronological order or even to quote people verbatim, as long as the essence of what they said was preserved. Ancient Greek and Hebrew didn't even have symbols for quotation marks. Okay? They were more concerned about the substance of the story Okay, uh, not like exactly, this is the exact verbiage of exactly, the point is the meaning. And isn't that happened today? I say this all the time. I'll take a Christian who may not be able to quote chapter and verse of a scripture and maybe not get it totally right, but they understand the meaning of that verse. More importantly, they apply it. I'll take a Christian like that any day of the week versus somebody who can memorize the scripture, chapter, verse, blow you away with it, and acts like a non-Christian. And isn't the church on times sometimes full of people like that? Yeah, you know the scripture, but you don't live it, right? And so that's what it says. You need to get the point. One study suggested in the ancient Middle East, anywhere from 10 to 40% of the given retelling of a sacred tradition could vary from one occasion to the next. However, there were always fixed points that were unalterable, right? And the community had the right to intervene and correct the storyteller if he or she erred on those important aspects of the story, right? So you got five people sitting around the office place, and they're all talking about an episode of Seinfeld, Right? And it has something to do with the pretzel. I hear, for those of you who watch that show, I guess there was a, something that had to do with the pretzel one time, right? And uh, so, but, it, but you know that show. And so if somebody said something, you, you correct them. No, 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 no. Kramer actually went this way down the hall, you know, whatever. Right? And that's what he's saying uh, is here. In the ancient world, the importance was not seen in quotation, but rather getting the gist of the teaching right. And isn't that the point? Number eight. The literary genre of the Gospels most resembles that of other trustworthy histories and biographies from the ancient world, right? So if this is some whooped up thing by man later to try to fool us, then obviously the writing today that we write today is different than from it when ye, the Shakespearean English, right? Oh, Lord, thy, thou, thee. How many of you guys are glad you don't talk like that? All two of you, the rest of you will keep praying. <laughs> right? Well, it just changes over time. So if you're going to write this later, then you're going to get caught because you're writing in a different lingo, right? But that's not what we see. Number nine, the presence of details would embarrass the apostles, supports the gospel's historicity. If the apostles were making this up, why would they include that they disbelieved, they misunderstood, they even denied Jesus? Why would they record that they argued at times and acted like a bunch of chicken livers, right? Cowards. I mean, if you're making this up and you're trying to sway people to your made-up religion, like my philosophy teacher said in secular college, I mean, it's just, it'd be just like advertising today. What's advertising do? They don't tell you all the negative stuff. In fact, you've seen those commercials. That's getting really bad out there, right? It's got, hey, we got this new medication. They're coming with medication to fix things that it's like you didn't have to get fixed before. But do you have this hangnail on your toe? This new schlamalta, if you, the new schlamalta. And then have you noticed what they do? Then, of course, to legally cover their bases because it's got 55,000 different side effects, right? Hey, it fixes that fungus on your toe, but you could die of a heart attack. You can commit suicide. You can, your family, your house will blow up. Your dogs will die. You, you know, it's all this stuff. But if you notice what they do so you don't listen to that, the person's smiling, catching a Frisbee. 
And as they're saying, he could, you could die of a heart attack. Your lungs could fall off. You're, have you noticed that? It's, it's the same deceptive thing, right? But if you're going to try to get somebody to buy into your way, right, you're not going to talk about all the bad stuff. Even today in advertising, they try to cover it up because they want you to buy the product. So why would these guys sit there and admit that they were a bunch of chicken livers, that they questioned Jesus themselves, he had to correct them all the time, and they didn't live perfect lives? Think about it. That adds to the authenticity of it. Now, the good news is, praise God that they record that, because isn't that a comfort to you and I? That as Christians, even when we blow it, and when we don't trust God, he still loves us, and he can still use us. Amen? Okay, and that's what we see in the scripture. Uh, almost done there. The testimony of non-Christian writers confirms the general contours of Christ's life. Ancient writers, historians do not write much about religious matters. They wrote about political rulers, emperors, kings, military leaders, and battles. With this in mind, it's remarkable how much is recorded about Jesus in ancient non-Christian writers. We have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion. One expert document counts 39 ancient sources outside the Bible that corroborate more than 100 facts concerning Jesus' life, teaching, crucifixion, and resurrection. A lot of people say, well, we can't trust you know, what it says about Jesus because these guys just made it up. We don't even know if Jesus was historically accurate because the only place we find Jesus recorded is in the Bible. And that's circular reason, you know, whatever they would say. Excuse me? Well, Jesus is the only uh, most proved, uh, 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 veracified, uh, uh, history figure uh, in all of history, period. There's so many accounts of Jesus being recorded in history outside of the Bible. You don't find that with any other historical figure in all of human uh, history. Let me give you just a couple uh, examples real quick, hopefully. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class of hate. This is their actual documents. Non-Christians recorded in history. Nero fasted in the guilt on a class of hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which is Latin for Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. He records it in a secular document outside the Bible, right? And again, these guys weren't concerned with this. By and large, they weren't talking about religion. They were talking about the wars, the guy stuffs, and the politics and whatever. But something about Jesus made him record that, right? Caused a stir. Pliny the Younger, uh, at 112 A.D., uh, talked about uh, uh, the conduct for legal proceedings on how to deal with those being accused of being Christians. Wrote, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Then they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never commit a fraud and never commit a fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word nor deny a trust when called upon to deliver it up. And after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food. Potlucks, baby. It was right there from the beginning, recorded in a Roman document. Yeah, let's, yeah, I'm excited too. But Josephus, uh, first Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus. Quote, this is, in Jew this is a Jewish guy. Contemporary at the time of Jesus Christ. Here's what he wrote in his documents outside the Bible. At about this time, there lived a man, Jesus, a wise man. Indeed, if one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, uh, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared even to this day. That's pretty wild. Okay. And uh, let me give you just one more. I got a bunch more, but for the sake of time, um, 
I wanted to give you another one. Oh, this is from Thallus. This is another historian, secular historian, uh, wrote about um, 52 AD. He wrote about uh, first century AD, but he wrote about around 52 AD about the darkness that fell during the crucifixion as an actual historical account. And he was writing, he was uh, quoting later Julius Africanus, quote, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness. The rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. So outside the Bible, they actually record the historical evidence that we see in the scripture about the crucifixion of Jesus when things went dark. Uh, And by the way, there's at least 42 that I came up with in the research. This guy here says 39, 42. uh, uh, Different authors that mention Jesus within 150 years of his first coming. Okay, now contrast this with only 10 authors, 10 that mention Tiberius Caesar within 150 years of his life, who was the Roman emperor during Jesus' ministry, and nobody questions his existence. Right? We got more. Uh, through Jesus, okay? He is historically accurate. Number 11, archaeology has confirmed the circumstantial details in the New Testament. Circumstantial is your blank there. We saw that before in a previous study. I'm not going to belabor that. Number 12, the testimony of early Christian writers supports, here's your blank there, supports most of the rest of the details. These early Christian writers were people who had left their former lives. The early Christians had not always been Christians. They all had non-Christian backgrounds and traditions and then became followers of Christ. To say that their testimony is too biased because they believed what they were saying is like saying you're disqualified from writing about history if you believe the things you're writing actually happen. Right? Because I say, well, we can't trust what they say because they're biased, because they're Christians. Let's go back to the analogy of the car accident, right? You're there, you saw it, you're writing your report for the police, right? Police comes up and say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't accept this evidence because you believe what you're writing there. Well, yeah, because I was there, and you told me to write about it. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, well, I, excuse me? And that's how ridiculous it is. If you stop and think about it, whoa, whoa, let's slow that thought down, and let's examine it, shall we? Come let us reason together. That doesn't make sense, saying you can't trust that. Of course, right? They were there. Why wouldn't you believe it, right? Unless you were a liar. But we'll close with this. You know, a lot of people that say, okay, that's great, uh, but what about the lost books of the Bible? All right, how many shows does the History Channel come out with that show? And the reason why the lost books of the Bible are lost is because they deserve to be lost, okay? And they weren't lost, they were kicked out, okay? The early church uh, put things through a filter. God already said that he, the Holy Spirit, inspired, he guided the writers as they were writing what God wanted them to write using their personalities. But it's the same thing when it comes to choosing the authentic books of the Bible. It wasn't just uh, willy-nilly, Okay, it literally, it had to go through a filtering process, okay? They, and they had to pass this filter. Was the author of the book an apostle? Why is that important? Because we want eyewitness accounts. Does it agree with the rest of the scripture? Why is that important? Why does it have to pass that filter? Because God doesn't lie and shouldn't contradict. Was it accepted by the early church? Was it circulated by the early church? Why is that important? Because they were the closest to the scene of the crime, so to speak, right? So they should know better. And if they didn't like it, then there was probably a good reason why. And that's more accurate than you and I 2,000 years removed. They were right there, okay? Was it quoted by the early church? Did it come with the power of God? There's, you know, you could read the newspaper, but when you read the book of Romans, a little bit different, right? And a little bit more impacting, okay, than that. So you had to go through that book. But then again, people will sit there and say, oh no, but there's, there, there's a conspiracy. They're holding books out on us. And they do find books. They said they're lost books, but they, they, they have this idea like they're, they're holding out something on us. 
They, this really should be in the Bible. They don't want this word out. They want you. No. There was a re, they weren't, they've never been lost. They were kicked out because they were not inspired by God because they never made it through the logical uh, filter. And, and, by the way, when you take a look at these actual books, you can see, without having to be there at that time, going through these filters, why they were rejected in the first place. And let me give you a real quick example, and we'll close. Uh, the Judas Gospel. Okay, the Judas Gospel uh, was published for us in 2006. I'm going, hey, we found a new gospel. It should be in the Bible. Oh, conspiracy. Right? Uh, but it's been known ever since 180 AD. Okay, so it's, it wasn't lost. It's been known. There's not some conspiracy going on. It was rejected because it made Judas the apostle who betrayed Jesus, uh, Jesus out to be some sort of hero. That's not from God, right? That contradicts, no. And so it was rejected, not because there's conspiracy, because it didn't make it through the filter. Common sense. The letter of Herod. There's actually a document out there called the letter of Herod. Okay, when the person, listen, forging that letter, because it was not inspired of God, man, man made these letters up. That's why they got rejected. Letter of Herod, where the person forging it forgot that Herod at the time of Jesus' birth was not the Herod at his trial and crucifixion. Oops. As one guy says, uh, get your history right if you're going to do a good bit of forgery. Right? So that's, that, that's why it got rejected. Not because they're hiding something from us, Mr. Tozer. We got to find out those nasty Christians. No. It got rejected, right? Okay. Or, for instance, somebody comes up even in two days. Right? Hands you a document, handwritten. And they and in that document they say, Hey, this is the secret letter of Pastor Billy. And you go, Oh, that's that's intriguing. Let me read it. Let me find out a little bit some secret details about Pastor Billy. And you're reading it, and it's got maybe some things that sound true, like, hey, Pastor Billy, he grew up in the Midwest in Kansas. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But right smack dab in the middle of it, they say, and he loves chicken. Rejected, right there. Spirit's document. This is not from Pastor Billy, right? right? It's the same thing. These things were rejected, right? And that, they, they would seduce people. They'd say some stuff that would go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But then they'd add it. No, mm, right? And it's got to be 100% accurate. Anyway, a couple more examples and we'll close. Gospel of Thomas. You guys heard that one? Very popular, right? It uh, gives uh, supposed secret details about Jesus' early years as a child. And amongst other things, I'll just give you one example, uh, says, as Jesus was playing, another child bumps into him and Jesus strikes him dead. Yeah, that's the Jesus we all know. No. Acts of Paul, which says, Paul baptizes a lion, and later this lion saved him in an amphitheater. Because we all know it's scriptural to baptize animals. That's why it's rejected. There's no conspiracy here. That's not from God, right? Uh, the proto-evangelium of James. It's got to be true because we can't even spell that word, right? was written to perpetuate... The perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not true. Catholic Church teaches that. Uh, she was placed in the temple at the age of three, and angels fed her. No, don't think so. And then what we read in the Gospels, in Luke, Mary says, you know, she was looking forward to, she was excited about the birth of Jesus because she's my God, my Savior. She needed a Savior, which means if you need a Savior, you sin. Right? You're not sinless. And last one, this one's hilarious. The Acts of John. Well, it's got John's name. There's John the Apostle. It's got to be real. No. A state, John comes into an inn, and there are bed bugs in the bed. And then John commands the bed bugs to get out of the bed, and they get out of the bed and march in line right out of the room. 
And somebody's got bed bugs on the brain, if you believe that really came from John. What? And I don't have time to go into it on and on, on and on and on it goes. Okay, there is no conspiracy if you do your homework and they do the same thing. This is how they, this is how they get the scoffing mind into the non-Christian. I used to be one of them. Every time these so-called lost books, and they've never been lost, they were rejected from the beginning for good reason. All they do is wait one generation or 15 years or 10 years. It's getting shorter, I've noticed. Okay. And they bring them out. And then Christians do what Christians are supposed to do, like we're doing tonight in learning this study, giving a defense. So we give a defense as to why they were rejected. And then it calms down after a couple of years. About another 10 years, what's History Channel do? The new lost books of the Bible. They do the same thing again because they want to get another generation. Christians rise up, give a defense for it, etc., blah, blah, blah. And they keep repeating the same old lie. Now, the problem is they're getting away with it much more today because Christians are not being equipped on this level to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And that's why we're in our intro to apologetics. Lord willing, uh, next week we're going to continue on uh, with now. That's the New Testament. How about the Old Testament? How reliable is that? Because that's older. Uh, than the New Testament. And that's extremely accurate, but we'll get to that uh, next week. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word, Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. 
God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the heart, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. 
He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.